0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Environmental Social Justice. I'm your host, Wendy Nystrom, and today's special guest is Rod Thaler. He is a board member of the Resilience Innovation Hub, as well as the founder of RT Mitigation. Welcome to the show, Rod.
1: (laughs) I'm glad to be here. Thank you for uh, having me.
0: Anytime. Um, The work you're doing is actually very, very important with respect to climate change and risk management. Could you please, um, let's start with talking about what RT Mitigation does.
1: Well, first of all, people have joked it's Rod Thaler mitigation, but it's not. Other people have said maybe it's Wreath and Thaler mitigation, but actually it's risk transfer mitigation. And if you if you think about it, there's a there's a real dearth of catastrophe capacity out there and people need to be incentivized to mitigate. And if if you provide the financial incentives, uh, people will do it. Uh, We've seen that in Alabama, you know, with big premium discounts but risk transfer mitigation is something that should get the attention of insurance company executives and reinsurance companies, because what it means is finding a way to access broader capital uh, and to create lower catastrophe losses by fortifying homes or making homes more resilient to have a lower catastrophe loss cost uh, and presumably to be able to access broader capital and, and lower the cost to actually transfer catastrophe risk. And if that, if that's possible, it's going to free up some funding, perhaps uh, either de facto amounts that could be can be reapplied to further mitigate risk, which makes the risk transfer even better. Uh-huh. So it's uh, it's, a, it's a recurring sort of sustainable thing where we need to find more capital dedicated to catastrophe uh, managing catastrophe risk, uh, especially in situations where a social or environmental benefit is being served. And that could open the door to broader capital. but uh, so I'm excited about it because, uh, it comes at a time when we know we have to do something to address uh, the increasing amount of catastrophes.
0: Yes, um, I actually talk about this subject quite a bit, you know, background and in insurance folks. So when we talk about climate change, we're on a precipice right now with respect to, to insurance and risk and mitigation because we have more frequent storms that are more severe. So we are increasing that risk dramatically. And I just did an interview the other day where we talked about the lack of insurance out there and the premiums are getting higher and people can't afford it. And as Rod was saying, it is so much more effective to mitigate the risk rather than recover from the risk. So stopping it before it starts. And the work that Rod's doing is just that. It's helping people figure out ways to incentivize that mitigation. Let's transition to talking about your your work with the Resilience Innovation Hub. I don't think many people know what that would be.
1: Well, I, I met uh, Richard Sealine, who is a, uh, he worked in Wall Street, uh, excuse me, worked in Washington. I mean, that was a misstatement. Um, and he had very senior leadership positions. He knows his way around the Congress, uh, he's got a lot of contacts on both sides yeah. of the aisle. But he's a connector. He's someone who uh, he's brought together a number of different stakeholders. And there's a real urgent need to implement the Cedars Act, which is a Community Disaster Resilience Zones Act. And there's a lot of people who are consultants who can tell you what should be done. Yes. But I think the difference is that Richard uh, has assembled a group of doers, people who are actually saying, okay, how do we actually get stuff done? And he uses other words, but uh, let's just say, get stuff done. And um, he's, he's driven to, uh, to do this. And so the resilience uh, innovation hub, it's really an independent group of people. It's not people who are wedded to maintain the status quo. And I think that's really important. Yes, it because, is. Because uh, there's so much technology and so many advancements that you need to you need to get a broader tent, let more people under the tent. Because believe it or not, there are some inefficiencies that have a constituency that's protecting them. So every inefficiency shocking. has a constituency. <laughs> it's a shocking revelation, I'm sure. but um, But by working with a really well-known architectural firm, Gensler, uh, Reeves Taylor has been a very, very big supporter. He's setting up their resilience uh, activities. And with incredible data from State Book uh, Insights, and then getting former government people, Bullock and Haddow, and and others, um, there's actually about 18 different groups coming under the umbrella, under the roof of Resilience Innovation Hub. And what's interesting is you get, you get people who are the end line users, that you get the, the citizens, the community groups as well. So it's not just... Someone in business saying, hey, this is what we should do. It's people who are familiar with the resiliency environment and uh, people familiar with emergency management, people who have been in the trenches, but people who are actually used to getting stuff done. Uh, when I was a re I only got paid if I got stuff done. That's my mentality is yes. keep it simple and, um, and, and get it done, because if it doesn't get done, all the great, great ideas, you know, are, you know, are for naught.
0: You know, you just used the only acronym I'll ever use is a KISS, keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) It it has to be kept simple and the community engagement is vastly important because if we cannot get the community involved to do community-wide mitigation measures, meaning if you harden one house, it's not gonna really matter. The fires still are gonna take you, the floods are still gonna take you. But if you mitigate entire communities, which is what the Resilience Hub is doing, Innovation Hub is doing, that will have the the massive change that we need, right? Um, and when people, when you talk about community disaster resilience zones, that is like a whole zone of community that you were trying to harden, make right. resilient, and mitigate that risk, stop the risk before it, you know, before the hazard starts. So, um, can you share with us maybe one of your pilots that you're working on, just so people can can visualize um, sure. what how it's doing?
1: So uh, I'll give you the background. I was driving around Alabama. Uh, working on a, under contract to the insurance commissioner uh, because they have done a great job of creating a residential wind mitigation program. And Jim Ridling, who created it with uh, Brian Powell, who's now the director of resilience um, and mitigation and in, uh, in Alabama and terrific guy um, with Charles Angel, who is the actuar, chief actuary. They were concerned about the stability of the insurance markets and if if companies uh, after large hurricanes exit the state it creates a huge availability crisis so yes. by by hardening homes by fortifying more homes uh they're able to reduce the the they're able to strengthen the market it helps to uh, improve the residual market so that actually business gets depopulated uh it doesn't create shock losses for for insurers who, who get, get hit with assessments but the biggest thing is when you fortify more homes, if you think about a hurricane coming in, there's a, say a 200-mile wind field, uh, the hurricane, the peak wind speeds are usually in a, a 25 to 50-mile corridor. And the wind speeds degrade or go down as you go laterally or as you go vertically. So most wind speeds, even if it's a hurricane of, say, category three or four, which would be rare, of, let's say 130, 140 miles an hour, those yeah. wind speeds are only in a 10 or 15-mile Quarter and they go down to 120 or 115 or 110. And it's possible, realistically, commercially possible to protect up to about 115 miles an hour. I think that's what IBHS would say. So what happens is that 200 mile wind field, you can now protect 75% of the wind field. So you're narrowing the field of the most severe damage. And when you narrow the field of most severe damage, that has so many positive benefits. It helps to reduce post-event demand surge, where prices go up because if, if there's a larger, larger area that's affected by severe loss, it creates a greater demand for for reconstruction. So the prices go up. So anyway, um, uh, I think your your question, what was your question? That was how, what pilots were doing? So Yeah, yeah. So people can get a visualization. Sure. So uh, we've actually made a formal presentation to FEMA. Uh, I've been talking with FEMA now for four years. I've started making formal outlining the the ideas. And I want to just do a shout out to Victoria Salinas uh, and uh, um, the people there, Janine Peterson uh, and Pam Williams. They're doing a terrific job. These are people who are really terrific, hardworking FEMA leaders focused on mitigation. And and they're just tireless in their efforts. Um, So this pilot is to get to the next generation. I did a, I did a, a trial pilot at Hobart William Smith, where I had a student for a year, work with me. And what we did was we uh, were looking at ways to engage the private sector uh, and teaching him about resilience. How do you articulate the value of resilience? Well, first of all, what is resilience, you might ask? Um, I was thinking about the three little pigs. And um, I, I don't mean this, I, I hope no one's offended, but you know there are three little pigs and two of them, they built their houses of straw and twigs but the third one built his house of brick. Well, when the when the old big bad wolf came a calling, um, you know, it wasn't as good a situation for the guys, the pigs, and the and the straw and the and the twig house. So, so fortifying your home, you don't have to make it a brick house. Uh, we're, you know, we're not, don't, I don't want to be piggish and say we have to spend a lot of money and 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 make it a brick house. But just keeping the roof on the house is going to yeah. make it secure and so the, the the mitigation efforts is the effort to make it re, you know uh to fortify it to make it more resilient the resiliency is the benefit of being that little pig inside the house of the brick house when the, when the storm comes you're going to be in a more resilient position to better withstand uh the uh, whatever the, the perils are outside so anyway i digress so there are, great analogy,
0: there are, though. Fabulous. Yeah. I mean, perfect analogy.
1: There are great ways to articulate the value of resiliency. Every business, when I drove around Alabama trying to convince people to support uh, Strength of Alabama Homes, I put together, you know, really nice looking uh, slide decks. Although my, my kids tell me they're like fifth grade quality. But I, yeah, they were, I thought, making the point to Mercedes and to, to Airbus, how, yeah. they be- how they benefit from resiliency, by improving their workforce management. They could identify uh, certain employees based on performance who they can incentivize and help fortify their home, maybe a copay in the cost of the fortifying the home, or for workforce uh, management to attract and retain workers, um, or to uh, for business continuity. So I was visiting with a big plant hostel down on Mobile. They have 4,000 employees. I talked with a the manager there, and uh, I said, well, what happens after hurricanes hit? Do you have a lot of absenteeism? He said, oh, yeah, well, we get two or three, 400, you know, a lot of people, uh, more than the usual Mondays with people are calling in sick. But yeah. uh, so I said, well, if you keep track of those stats, we could help you do an analysis to show the cost benefit of helping to fortify homes. Uh, because it's it's important to be able to get back up and running and not have downtime because they have so many government contracts that they're losing money that they can build a federal government. So, so workforce management, uh, business continuity, there are ways to appeal to the enlightened self-interest of business owners, uh, because they can do good things for their surrounding communities that are good for their business. They're good for their operational results. And you see this more and more that, that, that human resources are looking at benefits to create benefits that reinforce the company's goals so that they're really tied together. So that's something I try, but, uh, but now, in this pilot that we're recommending, I mentioned this uh, to uh, Janine Peterson, uh, who is one of the top people at uh, at FEMA. That um, I think some of these businesses will bite our arm off just to get a chance to be one of the companies in the pilot because we're, we're looking at raising money and giving a 30 or 40% discount. So paying 30 or 40% to prime the pump to get some of these businesses to say, you know, that sounds pretty good. We'll get them to do it with the minimum number of employee homes. Uh, and maybe commit for two or three years or maybe one year. But the point is this, is once they start to see how easy this is to do and how beneficial it is to their business, you know, enlightened self-interest is alive and well. And one of the things we need to do to move resiliency efforts forward is to harness enlightened self-interest. Because that takes every FEMA dollar, every federal dollar, and we're gonna multiply the value of that. And so the pilot, that talks about the money. The pilot is going to create force multipliers in terms of students who get so passionate. I saw this in my one-year internship I did. How excited! I mean, you might get the feeling that I'm a little bit passionate about this. So what, what I'm trying to do is to make my my enthusiasm for the subject infectious. And I was going to retire and teach history from you know at 55, and I didn't do it because I was too well, too consumed with making money. But um, uh, but uh, lavish lifestyle, whatever. But the bottom line is this: I could not get over how enthusiastic these students were, and so getting them fired up. And every state has state universities. So I'm looking at at uh, Alabama and Mobile the mm-hmm. University of South Alabama. Uh, there's a Bishop, which is one of the historically black, black colleges. Also want to work with them. Uh, we have a member on the uh, uh, Resilience uh, the Innovation Hub who is one of the leaders and black college, uh, history. history, uh, think David Smith. But so the point is this, we want to get to students and in educating them, they can, they can develop skills that will help them get jobs. And this is in an area where there's a crying need for people to help. Uh, and so it's a mutually beneficial thing, matching people up, getting them excited. Uh, millennials, next gens are craving the opportunity to make a difference, right? Yeah. So, and uh, I have four kids and I know they all want to make a difference. The biggest thing I want to do is want to get dad to stop talking. But in any event, um, the bottom line is this, these pilots, we've, we've got two scheduled, one in Mobile and another one in Charleston. We'll probably do one in Houston. We'll get the students fired okay. up we'll, and educate them. And then we'll, we'll provide guidance. I've got a great group of guys, uh, Roger Perret, who is the former chief final officer of uh, at the, at the hanover companies he's the vice chair of insure uh, i've got uh george reeth uh, who is former he founded uh, validus re and uh, was my mentor he was the ceo of willis re one of the greatest uh, investments made by kkr um as well as as well as other people my brother warren thaler who is uh, president of Gund investments um wow. and uh, you know so we've got different people with different skill sets coming together and then of course all the parties within the, under the hub of the, the resilience innovation hub uh, the leadership connect is a great tool. It's that rich Richard uh, C is, is, is going to be developing. We've got insurance regulators. We, we've got, uh, 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 Eleanor Kitzman, who was commissioner of, uh, in, in, uh, Texas and also in South Carolina. So it's an interesting, uh, co- uh, collaboration of people. And we're not wedded to maintain the status quo. So so I tell you the biggest thing, and I I think this is a critical point. We'd like to, I wanna simplify this pilot is not just to be nice and teach people and educate kids. This is gonna be learning with impact, learning with impact. So rather than just doing something just to educate people, these students are gonna be part of creating a portfolio of risk that we're gonna fortify. And we're gonna apply a streamlined treaty reinsurance approach, where we take the best practices from treaty reinsurance and streamline it. So that FEMA, when I was sitting in uh, in a bunker in in Clanton, Alabama, they told me the process they had to go through to apply for funds from FEMA for mitigation, and it would just choke a horse. It was just... Yeah, that is true. And I said, listen, there's a better way. We can take the best practices from treaty reinsurance, and it's like migrating from facultative, individual reinsurance to treaty, which is much more efficient. And a light went off. And that's why I've been so focused on this, because I, I made a presentation where people can, can get a copy of. It's creating force multipliers for catastrophe mitigation. I did that in 21. And I did a more recent one you know, learning uh, student resiliency internships, learning with impact. So the impact we're going to have is we're going to hire one of the smartest, uh, I come from Boston, the smartest people in the resilience world, who is uh, uh, Nancy Watkins uh, who has been a big supporter of mine, uh, for low these many years. And we're going to c- collect the information. We we're going to show how we can cut the time to fortify homes from the day one. We can do it in, 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 in uh, six to eight months, as opposed to waiting for FEMA and taking two, two to two and a half years. Um, so we're going to streamline it. We're going to, I've gone through and done a side by side comparison. Thank, thanks to the emergency management people up in, uh, in in uh, northern Alabama in Huntsville, they gave me the PDF, so I was able to go through the FEMA brick application. And it must have been during COVID or something when I had so little time. My kids always said, "Dad, you should retire and go play golf or do something." But I was there going through this 45-page question page uh, application. And what I did was I took the best practices from the state mitigation programs. Uh, there's a great program in North Carolina. Uh, Gina Hardy. Uh, in South Carolina, and Roberson is doing a fabulous job with their uh, South Carolina program and then uh, Brian Powell. So I took the best practices because they streamline this on a web-based system. You know, nice. it's never too late to let common sense intervene. You know, some of these questions, what happens with a, with a FEMA application, as with any government application, they have so many questions they could put in over over the years and nobody ever takes anything out. You know, it's like, it's like hoarding all this stuff and so it needs to be cleaned up so i went through and i looked at this from the perspective of fema their fiduciary responsibility but i looked at it from the standpoint of streamlining this and i came up with a template which i think will work applying a much more uh, straightforward questioning without reducing the financial integrity of the questions and this is something that you've seen gary peters uh senate uh, homeland security committee and um senator cassidy from louisiana they just put out a bill to simplify FEMA and accessing federal funding. So That's this so, time, nice. um, so this, these pilots are, you know, pilots we're talking about doing, and I mentioned Nancy's name, and uh, so Nancy's gonna help me put this all together with her actuarial credibility to show FEMA what's the upside for the country? How do yes. we benefit as a country? How do the states, and I've done some analysis of the, of the fiscal benefits and stimulus in the states, because it's huge, you know it's it's it, before the loss. you know there's a way to, to get people working. And to go in and Brian Powell came up with a great idea, which was creating these 13th grades where we go into impoverished communities and we create training for some of these these communities like Africatown in Mobile, where the last shipment illegally of slaves came into the United States, or we go into uh, uh, Sandy's Island in, in South Carolina. Uh, where the first shipment slaves came in in 1565, way before James. Anyway, so what we want to do is we want to go to some of these communities where we're going to look to do work and try to hire and train some of the people, maybe to be inspectors or to work with some of the contractors, so that this is something where, you know, we're trying to, and and Larry Bacow of Harvard, who I talked to about this, because Harvard made a $100 million commitment to address their entanglement with African American slavery, and um, uh, Claudine Gay, who's now taken over as president, as first African-American president of Harvard. Um, she, is, I think, will be supportive of this, where we're not going to ask for Harvard to give us a lot of money, but they could be conveners uh, of sharing best practices. I mean, getting people up at the JFK school to share what the best practices are in terms of uh, states accelerating uh, mitigation efforts, how they can make outreach to the private sector. And, and also from a research standpoint, getting universities to tap into the, the empirical evidence that helps to quantify you know, the benefits of resiliency way beyond what simple you know, what a simple uh, mind can mind can come up with. I mean this, this is a lot. For example, you, know, you look at the, uh, the debris removal issues that come after a storm, uh, so many local budgets are disrupted because they, they have to pay for all this debris removal. But what's the what's the environmental cost in terms of the toxic waste that's finding its way into uh, the you know the landfills, the streams, all the, all the toxic waste. Once the roof comes off a house, you know all the stuff inside gets thrown out, and so that becomes oh, yeah. becomes an environmental concern. But the bottom line is this: um, you know, getting people excited. Uh, this is not about um, uh, dictating to people how things should be done. This is about you know helping to share uh and enlighten people as to the benefits because we yeah. each we each have a dog in the fight for resiliency
0: very true and you know i wanted to just um go back when you talked about fema and the application process it is extremely difficult um i was at a wildfire summit in september and there are people there that um they gave a statistic i forget it was a very high number of people are actually rejected from their fema applications because they just filled it out wrong or they didn't know how to fill it out so streamlining it that that personally to me would be an extremely important factor to execute quickly because a lot of people are missing out on funds simply because they don't know how to fill out this application, which is very long. It's a very complicated application. Yeah, I have
1: I have an interesting exhibit. I I've tried to simplify things, but uh, the the goal in life is keeping it simple. Um, home home retrofits are not rocket science. Uh, you know, a big issue comes up with a cost benefit analysis, and it can be simplified. Yeah. But you know what's really cool is that all these different states um, can become de facto innovation labs uh, where they can things that they do to access the private sector. For example, working closely with community foundations and with impoverished communities. So, for example, the South Alabama Community Foundation working with Africa Town and local businesses to create a systematic approach, and to work them with universities like Harvard who or Brown. Brown has made a significant commitment to uh, their African American uh, history of entanglement with African-American slavery. So, you know, now we get some wicked smart people who could be bringing good ideas to the table. And um, but the biggest thing is uh, businesses can benefit. Doing good is good for business. And, um, you know, I'm I'm pretty excited, pretty pumped up about this, as you might imagine. But um, but I think the biggest thing is I come to praise the reinsurance industry, not to bury it. Um, yeah. It's a kind of a takeoff on Mark Anthony's uh, funeral oration and Julius Caesar uh, when he said, I come to bury Caesar not to praise him. Well, I come to praise the insurance and reinsurance industry not to bury it. Uh The fact that they're running headlong away from, you know, catastrophe, exposure, and wildfire and certain things, um, they can't really continue to do that. They need yeah. to make a stand. They need to dig in and 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 mitigate, improve the risk. And I say this. As a 40-year veteran working with uh, FM Global and Legacy uh, Allendale, uh, they 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 are probably the best at loss prevention in the world. And I think that's generally, uh, and I, I yeah,
0: no, FM has a very good reputation.
1: And having been their top advisor for so many decades, I was able to be. I was with them when they created their performance-based exposure models, where they got basically lower lower cap modeling uh, scores because of the the, the protection the prevention. And what I want to see happen is work with CoreLogic, and, and, uh, which is a great firm, and uh, Milliman to create uh, more sensitive cat modeling because uh, there has to be an inducement for people to fortify their homes. That comes in the form of wind premium discounts and but also for other perils. And I think there needs to be a competition amongst the best firms to create the best mitigation programs for the other perils as well. But you start with wind because it's more it's more advanced at this stage. But but once that happens, um, the real excitement here for insurance companies, if the CEOs, they have to get off this uh, the, this notion that they have to continually grow their premium. They need yes. to think about bottom line profitability. Uh, I know I know they think about that, but so many public traded companies, you know, they don't want to give up the volume. But I can tell you right now that someone like uh, Nancy uh, Watkins and and others in the actual field, and I could even do it myself, although it'd be little more cryptic is to show how uh, investing in mitigation, fortifying homes, systematically supporting state mitigation programs will reduce the volatility of their net retained losses, but it also reduces their residual market charges and it will reduce the cost to buy reinsurance. And so they do have a lot to gain, but uh, but they're not running to the, to the party here because uh, as I've learned from their trade groups, they don't want to be told by insurance commissioners how to use their capital and they view that when they have to have mandatory discounts on premiums that that is a de facto uh, mandate uh, to, to them as to how they use their capital so they need they need basically they need a check up from the neck up okay they yeah. need to see how they can benefit because they will benefit and uh we'll show that empirically and um you know, but there are some parties in the industry that benefit by volatility. I won't go and point out any names, but, but, you know, uh, every constituency has uh, every inefficiency has a constituency, I should say. So, uh, but I think, I think getting the insurance industry behind this is going to be really important. It would probably be the most tangible thing they can do. And once you get other industries, like uh, supporting fortifying homes, it becomes a de facto quota share for the benefit of the insurance industry. So, the more they look into this i think the more they'll, they'll catch on and i think um that's the exciting part of this is that uh uh it, it can be something where the insurance industry can be a leader uh in, yeah. in in making the country more resilient
0: no you're absolutely right and um the insurance industry does need to do a little bit of change i mean i talk about insurance and climate quite a bit and i've interviewed numerous people and the the big thing is the effective communication because um, when I first left the insurance industry, I was actually hired to teach a class called Insurance 101 for Climate Activists. Because people kept asking me, you know, why don't you just cover climate? And I said, well, what, what part of climate? And they said, just climate in general. I'm like, well, that's not a tangible risk. You can't really do that. And then the second factor is, you know, when they say, why don't, why are insurance companies keep raising rates? It's like, well, you know, as a friend of mine coined it, she said, they're not a charitable institution, they have to make a profit. And what Rod is doing, Is he's trying to make that bottom line profit more tangible by doing the mitigation techniques with the resilience innovation hub. And I love the fact of the education aspect, the students are, you're right. Students and the younger generation, they want a purposeful life. They want meaning to their job. We are seeing that and it's extremely important. And the fact that you're educating and teaching, and you're also doing apprenticeships. Um, I saw that in the write-up. Um, could, before I let you go, could you just explain really quick about the apprenticeships that you guys
1: are doing? Yeah, well, the, many of the uh, the other thing I want I think is important to, to mention is that FEMA is doing a terrific job. But FEMA is like Charles Atlas holding up the world. Every time there's a crisis, they get called in, uh, oh, yes. and there's so many other government agencies. The Small Business Administration uh, is a terrific. Uh, they've got some terrific leadership there, uh, as well as HUD and and other uh, mm-hmm. Department of Defense they all have a need to address this and they all are focused on, uh, young people, uh, and, and should be, uh, apprenticeships, uh, people working alongside, um, I, I did my thesis uh, at Harvard on a man who was, a, started as an apprentice and as a, to a merchant in, in Boston on become a very successful merchant during the uh, revolution. But, uh, so you do your seven year apprentice. We're not gonna do seven years. Uh, but, uh, people, um working alongside uh, you know we've got some terrific senior uh, executives, people who have some retired who uh, feel the same way as I do um, and who are very articulate uh, more articulate than I am and are able to communicate what they've learned and it's a you know passing on what you've learned is a great way of um yeah. you know it's I think the people passing it on benefit every bit as much as the recipients and so uh, you the sense of value, the sense of being, you know, that, you know, I'm not, you know, you retire and, you know, you've lost the ability to throw a 95 mile an hour fastball and nobody notices. And you, I mean, so it's a, it's a great way to stay relevant and, um, and and you see people get excited. And uh, so apprenticeships, uh, in short, will be getting people to help the state mitigation programs. They don't certainly have enough people. I know Brian Powell, Brian Powell does so many different functions. Uh, and it was director of resilience, um, and I know uh, Gina Hardy in and, and North, North Carolina, and Ann Roberson, they are all really dedicated, hardworking people. But they would love to have people, you know, who could be focused on this and could help expand the sources of funding. And so oh, yes. it's, it's a win-win situation. It's good for the, the young people. And it's good for the, uh, for the institutions and for the states.
0: It is nice to see apprentices making a comeback, um, hopefully paid because not paid, everybody
1: can absolutely. paid
0: Because yeah, I hate it when people are like, oh, it's an unpaid internship. I'm like, well, you know, that's not really it's
1: exploitation.
0: Yeah, it's not equitable for everybody. So um, I love the fact it is paid. And learning, as you said, passing down knowledge. You can read every book. You can go to every class. You can do webinars. One-on-one learning by doing and learning from someone's expertise. Is
1: invaluable. And by the way, you mentioned books. I just I don't want to appear to be Ill- illiterate. I if you look behind me, I have I have two sleeping dogs, but, uh, so but, do I. <laughs> but I have uh, I have no books, so very few books, because we've already packed up. We're moving after twenty years in one house, uh, and we're moving for, uh, next <laughs> and uh, so this is going to be the last time I, I speak to anyone about anything other than moving for, for the next week.
0: Moving is hard. Um, I I I stopped counting after my twentieth move. I'm like I can't. I cannot even look at that anymore. So so I get it. Um, but um, Rod, thank you for your time today. I know you've got a lot going on. You're very busy moving and the, your RT mitigation and everything. How is the best way for people to find you if they want to engage in what you're working
1: on? Sure, you can uh, reach out to me on web- my website or reach out at Rod at RTMitigation.com. Uh, rod at rtmitigation.com or uh, my cell phone 516-244-3336. um But uh, you know, it's, I'd be be more than pleased to talk to people. Um, I do have a few other jobs. I do. I'm the director of uh, traffic traffic flow at our local food pantry. So, nice. uh, uh, but I'm uh, but I, I'm looking forward to to these pilots and the teaching and uh, one of the, also, and just a, a shout out to Richard Sealine for all the good work that he's doing.
0: Magnificent person. Yes, he is. He's definitely doing a lot of good in this world. There is no doubt. Um, but thank you, Rod, for your time. The work you're doing is extremely important from the community outreach to the education, to just trying to fix this precipice that we are on. Because when the, I just did an interview talking about how basically insurance risk is financial risk. And if we have c- catastrophic losses, it will have a domino effect through our entire financial industry. So it's very, very important that we focus on the insurance aspect, get the mitigation in place, and stop these, you know, disasters from affecting our homes and communities as a whole. So thank you for your time. I, well,
1: I really do. On last word: it's it's <laughs> just remember, it's never too late to it let common sense, to let common sense intervene.
0: And some people find that difficult. <laughs> No, thank you, Rod, for your time. Um, I'm Wendy Nystrom, your host with Environmental Social Justice. Please check out Rod. It's rtmitigation.com. Excellent organization, great group. Doing good work, Rod.
1: Thank you very much. Appreciate Take it. Care. Thank you.